I'm Angela Kenneke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. Today I'm joined by two Rebeccas, Rebecca Hungerford and Rebecca Skinner, and they are two women with a very interesting story who are doing something very remarkable, and we're going to get into that as I interview them today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, we're very, very excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. First, I want to mention that you have both been in recovery, and you are recovery success stories to this point anyway. You have been in recovery, each of you, for quite a long time. Rebecca Hungerford, if you want to talk a little bit about your story. Yes, you bet. I am a recovering meth addict. Found recovery in Omaha is where uh, I went through recovery. Uh, Actually, like many people, got into trouble with uh, my addiction and was arrested. It's a really crazy story. I had wanted to find a way out for a very long time and just didn't know how. And so I thought the way would be to, at the time, my daughter was living with my parents at that point here uh, in Sioux City, Iowa. And I thought, you know, what I'll do is when they're on vacation, I will go get my daughter, bring her back here, I'll be able to find the strength to stay sober and uh, not use. And that worked for a few days. But of course, I didn't change uh, my friends and any of the things that you need to do. And so when they were calling uh, a few days after I had kind of moved her down to Omaha with me, um, went out to meet them and was arrested that day and went to jail And when they gave me my phone call, I called my daughter, and she was uh, just starting as a a freshman in high school, and uh, that was the hardest call ever. And I I just was completely honest with her. I said, you know, honey, I've been arrested for drugs. You're going to need to get a hold of your grandparents and make arrangements for them to come and get you. How many years ago was that? 14 years ago. Wow. Wow. And this was the turning point for you. This was the turning point, yes. And I actually still keep a picture of my, I don't know what, I I don't remember what they call that when they take you to jail and they they make you take a picture. Your booking photo? Yes, my booking photo. I keep that as a reminder of that day. And I have gone back uh, twice and I'm excited that I'm going to do that again this weekend to touch base with the officers that were there, uh, I, I go and I thank them for changing my life and let them know that actually how they handled it that day was remarkable to let them know that because they see so much bad. Not a lot of success stories. I mean, you truly are living success story. It, it feels great. And there were so many people along the way that helped me be where I am today. How long did you have the problem of substance use disorder? How long were you using meth for a long time? A few years. And did that just sort of happen? How did that happen? Oh, gosh. I'm telling you what. It's, it's you know, you just think that uh, I, I felt pretty invincible, straight-A student, 
was running a luxury automobile company in a very high position. You had everything going for you. Everything going like for so me. many people. I think that's that's the hard thing that many people who don't you know suffer from substance use disorder. Very hard thing for them to understand. It is, and it was you know definitely was raised. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You work hard. You do what's right. And so raised in a family of old beliefs that you just need to stop that. Why can't you just just why do you do this? And so it was really hard for me because I felt like there was something wrong with me then. And then knowing that I have a disease of addiction was such a relief because it meant that it was no longer a moral issue, that it was a moral failing on my part. That you're not a bad person. Exactly. So we're going to talk about what was so essential to your recovery in just a moment, but I want to give the other Rebecca, (laughs) Rebecca Skinner, a chance to tell a little bit of her story. And how many years have you been in recovery, Rebecca? (sighs) 12 years. Just celebrated my 12th year in February of this year. Congratulations. Thank you. My story kind of has two parts to it. I had struggled with an addiction for about a year and then was able to pull myself away from it, was sober for quite a few years. Then it became a certain people that I was associating with. It was, um, let's just do this on the weekends, maybe one night a week, the weekend thing. And then the weekend progressed into during the week. You you thought you were in control of it. it. Absolutely. I thought many people do is I can do this once or twice. I can control this. That's not how it works. What it was begins- your drug of choice? Methamphetamine. So both of you. Yes, absolutely. Why meth? You know, honestly, I feel like because with the methamphetamine, it's, it gives you a an energy level. It also gives you it also makes you kind of mask and forget about any other problems or issues you might have going on. So you're in a sense you're you're self medicating. And we find that a lot with people that there's underlined conditions. What was it that was the turning point for you to get um, into recovery? I've had custody of my oldest grandson. We were sleeping in my car in the Walmart parking lot. Sometimes we would pull in my mom's driveway. We would sleep in my mom's driveway. My youngest daughter at the time was in the care of my oldest brother and his wife. I had nothing. I had nothing but the clothes on our back. We had no place to live. I um, was out one evening and uh, was sitting in a parking lot of a closed business. Officers pulled up. Because this particular evening, somebody didn't lock a side door, so the alarm was going off. They pulled in to assess the situation, came up to my vehicle, asked for my driver's license. I was in possession of a suspended license. They uh, took me to jail, said it was you know just an in-and-out situation, not a big deal. I get there. They start to go through my belongings, and they start to find the drugs that I had on me. I, along with Rebecca, when I got out of jail and I got into treatment, and I've still to this day ran into those officers that have that arrested me that night, I thank them every day because if they hadn't made that choice to take me to jail that night, I don't think. I think that was the push that I needed. And to be away from my kids for that long, to be sitting in jail and being away from them, coming out, I knew that I went in on a misdemeanor charge. I came out with four felonies. 
And in the beginning, I even lied to my parents. They thought I went to jail on a DWI. I didn't tell them. They Uh, didn't know what you were using. They had no idea. But they knew things were bad. They did, but they didn't know that it was a drug addiction. They had no idea. And you knew things were bad because you'd lost everything. You're sleeping in your car. Yes. What happens in the mind of a user when everything's falling apart around them, but they continue to use? They they cannot go get help on their own, really. Unfortunately, a lot of times they just they continue to use because they don't – I was afraid to reach out to any resources because I was afraid – What's going to happen to my children? Are they going to take my kids away because I have this addiction? I wasn't educated on opportunities that are out there to get sober. So then I, I ended up checking myself into treatment. At the time, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of resources for inpatient programs. So I checked, put myself into an intensive outpatient program. I put myself in anger management because along with the addiction comes a lot of other problems. I did that. I actually extended myself three different times in my program because I knew that I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to graduate. I say to this day, the best thing that ever happened to me was me going to jail that night. It saved my life. And not only did it save my life, but it saved the life of my children. You oftentimes as a parent, you feel a lot of guilt for what I've put my kids through, what I put my family through. And I think a lot of what Rebecca and I are doing now is that we continue to make amends and give back and try to let the addicts that are dealing with this now know that there are options, there are resources, and there are people that that are there to help and to be non-judgmental. That's what I was going to ask you about is stopping the stigma and reducing the shame. How important is it that we do that? And do you think that that is happening now, maybe more than it was 12 and 14 years ago? I think it's it's now becoming, it's it's so much on the forefront now. It's not a hidden it's not this is just kind of back in the in the corner and there's becoming more i don't know if it's if it's just the more attention to it i really feel that it's very hard to change in our beliefs there is still so much stigma attached to it shame guilt it, it and a belief is just a thought you continue to think. And I think that uh, really in order to change our situation with how we approach uh, helping people with addiction is going to be trying to help change how people believe and view addiction. It's got to happen first. I think what people need to understand also, and especially those that have never dealt with addiction themselves or addiction within their family is that they don't understand that this is not necessarily a choice. This is a disease. And as much as you Using the first time is a choice. Using the first time. Yes. But then, and this was one thing that I had learned when I was in treatment and and with a lot of the people I was in treatment with, was 90% of the people that I was in treatment with had an underlined, whether it was a mental condition, that they were trying to do whatever they could, which was using the methamphetamines or the heroin or to mask that. So oftentimes we have to treat the underlying problem. 
again, they I don't I don't think people understand. They they're very judgmental when they see somebody with an addiction. What keeps you in recovery? Oh goodness, um, several things. The the life that how this has changed my life with my recovery, uh, my children, my family, just this huge drive and want and need to help so many other people. I wondered if you were going to say that, to help yes. out helping others and getting outside of yourself and, and focusing on other people and other people's needs. Is, is that something? Because I think oftentimes there's narcissism that maybe goes along with this disease too because yes. you become so self-obsessed. A lot, of, a lot of people you will find, whether you're sitting, if you're in an NA meeting or if you're in a treatment program, they will say, and I think for Rebecca and I, we can honestly relate to what these people are experiencing, what they're going through. This is not something that we've learned out of a textbook. We didn't learn this from searching the internet. We've lived it. So when we can say to them, we know exactly what you're going through, they will look at us or others in this situation and know that, yes, we've been through this, we've survived this, and they can too. And I believe that that's also something for the parents of the addicts is not only being a recovering addict, but being also a parent of a daughter that struggles with addiction. I, I've i been on both sides of it. And I think, again, that there is just that stigma out there and people are so quick to judge that we need to bring more awareness and it needs to be brought more to people. How did the two of you meet? <laughs> we know a gentleman together that Becky was engaged to for a long time and he actually works for the same company I work for. So, so you had a mutual friend, a mutual yes, acquaintance. Yes, just a mutual, a mutual friend. Yep. Rebecca and her husband had brought us to Florida three Two, two, three years ago, they had just got a, had bought some property there, and we were down there helping them do some stuff. And Rebecca and I had been sitting out by the pool that just this one particular night, and she knew that I was a recovering addict. I knew that she was, and we've talked a lot about our past and where we are now. Or we had both said at some point that our dream was always to be able to give back and the need for sober living and transitional living, we continued to talk about it and both realized that it had been a dream of ours since we got sober. So it, how long had you been talking about it? For a few years now. I had personal experience of living in a sober house in Omaha when I first started early recovery. So I actually started reaching out to the people that I knew in Omaha that set those houses up and such and started getting information. Then, you know, I would get put on the back burner. Life happens. I have a couple kids. You get really busy. You work full time. And then, you know, I just really personally started thinking about it. It was on a vision board. It it was something that I would visualize um, for myself on a daily basis when I thought about... That you about, would open up, that you would open up your own yes, sober living houses yes. here in our community where we do not have many sober living houses at all, maybe one or two Right. There available. were just a couple. I, I went online just to see if it was something we could do in our community. I, I didn't realize until I started looking that there weren't a lot of options. So then it was really exciting because it then became something that was more real and possible and needed. 
And now you're doing it. It's so exciting. <laughs> so from the concept, from the visualization to today, how long was that? A few years. A few years. But you never let go of that dream. Never. Neither one of you. Never. And now you're going to close on a house this month and open a sober, li- your first of hopefully many sober living homes. I have goosebumps. Yes. Wow. It's it's very emotional. A lot of my family has been immensely involved in this process to make this happen. And it has been such a joy uh, when that is unex- was unexpected to experience this with my mom and my dad my brothers and sisters, just everybody, friends, just the support has been very overwhelming. What you're saying is you didn't do this alone. No, just like (laughs) I could have never gotten clean alone. Doing this has definitely been a big project for many. You've partnered with the organization that you actually used when you were in recovery. You stayed in sober living at the Oxford House. It's an organization out of Omaha. They're going to come and help you figure out how to do it here. They are. It's very exciting. We're actually going down there this weekend to tour some of their homes now. And they'll be coming up next, uh, well, when we close. And then they're actually going to stay in the house temporarily to make sure that we get it going according to, you know, the Oxford House principles and such. So it can be successful. How essential was this to your own recovery? Very essential. Why? Yeah. It, oh, so many reasons. Oh, my goodness. I tell you what, um, when you're caught, when I was caught in addiction, the reason I continued to use in the end was because I couldn't face the person that I had become. And so uh, you continue to use you at that point, I was unemployed, could not be employed. I would still get the, uh, you know, the employment papers, and I would highlight jobs that I would love to go apply for. And that's as far as it ever got, because I had become unemployable. And so really, living in that house, learning, I had to learn how to be responsible again, I had to learn how to um, apply for jobs, pay my rent, uh, follow rules and and all of those things that you have to do to learn to live on life's terms. We hear about people going through treatment like over and over and over again. Is part of that reason because we don't have adequate aftercare, whether that be group meetings that people know about and are going to or going into sober living? I heard a drug court judge say, you cannot return to the same people, places, or things because all of those reminders and all of those things will just send people into relapse. Absolutely, 100% agree with that. Because when you come out of a 30-day treatment program, um, it feels like a lifetime, and it's such an accomplishment. I mean, every day, you just feel so grateful that you have made it. 30 days seems like a really long time in the beginning. And they're just, if you go back to where you were before, none of those people have changed. And then you're on your own resolve again. And you can't survive that way. You actually have to get plugged into people that are in recovery. And that's why going to meetings and meeting with people that have been doing it for a while I lived in meetings, and it was a requirement of my house that I lived in to go to these meetings. And I met other people that were not only staying clean and sober, but they were laughing. I remember, I mean, going to this meeting one night, and I parked, and, you know, I'm really fresh in recovery, and 
I, all these people are hanging out and they're laughing and having fun. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is the recovery I want. This is how I want to be. I want to be able to enjoy life again and be happy again. And so I got plugged into that in our, in Omaha at that time, being away from those old people, getting plugged in with new people. It's all extremely important. But then also, I mean, you need to start taking care of yourself eating right, seeing your doctor regularly, those things, because if, if there are other things that you need, depression or things of that nature. To treat the underlying issue yes. that uh, Rebecca here was talking about. I believe that one of the one of the biggest problems that people with addiction face when they're coming out of recovery, or even if they've been, say, for example, in jail for a period of time sitting a sentence is that when they come out of these jails and these prisons, they are coming out, they have nothing, they have nobody. So that is where the people's places things fall into is when they have nothing and they have nobody, they resort back to their old ways. And with the sober living houses, it's giving them a chance to come into a transitional living and teaching them how to live that sober life and live their best sober life. Teaching them, essentially, again, how to pay bills, be responsible for themselves. A lot of times you will find that these the addicts will relapse because they've gone back to the only thing that they knew. Or they've gone back to they didn't have a place, they don't have a place to stay. So they go back to maybe a house where this activity is still happening. And so our hope is to be able to, and our dream is to be able to help these men and women in recovery and give them that opportunity, give them that sober, clean living, transitional living home where they're paying bills, they're working, they're attending meetings, they're doing all these things to then essentially become productive member of society. I find there's, I think we have both found this, that there is such a a lack of that here in our community. And so sometimes they're just, they need to be given that chance. That's, again, that is just the hope and the dream is that they will come into the sober living houses and we will be able to, along with so many other people involved in this, we'll be able to teach them how to do this all over again. Because when you're in an addiction, you you have no empathy, you have no feelings, you just, you don't care. The only thing that you care about is where you're going to get that next high. And so keeping them hopefully away from these, I don't want to call say, it influences. Yes. And giving them their own platform and helping them to succeed. So you will close on this first house this month with the help of your family and your own determination. You really got, you really have done this all on your own with the help of friends and family without any outside community support or anything like that or collecting donations or anything. But, but now is the time once you get this house, you close on this house, you bring the Oxford house people up here from Omaha to help you figure out how to run it. Who is going to be staying in your first house and what kind of help do you need to make all of that happen within the next few months? Oh, I know. It's a massive undertaking. It's, uh, we'll be conducting interviews and we've been reaching out to several um, different folks, like the different treatment centers here in town or nearby, and 
letting them know that we're available and we'll be interviewing people to uh, be our first house guests. And so we have several of those meetings set up in a couple of weeks, in addition to um, ones that we've already had. And then also people in the community can reach out to us as well if they have a loved one that they would like to be considered for the house and they can be interviewed as to be a resident. How many, we're going to have women in this first house, correct? We are. And how many women we have room for? Nine total once some of the construction is done to remodel the basement into a new living space. Initially, there will be seven beds, and it just doesn't seem like enough. And uh, It's a start, though. It is a start. I'm very excited. It's, you know, the Oxford structure is is pretty unique. It's a completely self-run, self-supported house. For a lot of people, that's scary to think, oh, there's no staff holding everybody accountable. But it is amazing how beautiful it works. Because you've experienced it firsthand. Absolutely. So there's not somebody necessarily keeping track of everybody who's there and running things, but the group runs the house together. So what happens if somebody relapses? Well, that's the fantastic thing. They have to be they have to be thrown out of the house immediately. And when you come in and you are interviewed, you know that if you relapse that you are going to lose your position in the house and and the girls have to vote you out. It is a democratically run household, but there is a house sponsor that that will be part of the weekly meetings that occur in the house. Who do you think will be the sponsor? Will will you take on that role or you can look outside for somebody to Well, it initially I will until we have some other people involved and and Rebecca of course will also be helping with that and other members in the recovery community will be helping with that as well. So it's uh, uh, many, many people. It just takes a lot of time for addicts to uh, learn how to retrain their brain because it, it just, it, it doesn't happen overnight. So having this, this living space that's safe gives them more time to figure out and actually rebuild their own self-esteem and self-worth. So here's what I think is one of the main problems we have in our society right now. We think, okay, you put somebody in a 30-day treatment program, bam, you're going to be cured, where the brain can take 13 to 18 months to recover. I mean, we have scans and studies that show that. So no insurance company is willing to pay to put someone in treatment for 13 to 18 months. People couldn't have never afford that. So really, you're taking a missing piece in this puzzle in the time it takes for the brain to recover and you're filling in that gap with Absol- something like sober living. Absolutely. It is critical. It's so critical because, um, it, I mean, it's been shown if they stay for eight months in an Oxford house, 87% of people that will give that amount of time will stay sober. And because that does give their brain enough time and for them to heal inside, because that is, and it just it doesn't happen in 30 days. I mean, it's a great start. It's a tremendous start, but there's so much more to be done. Long term, what are your goals with with this project? You hope to have more than one house, right? Absolutely. Um, Long term, I think for this year, the hope is to have, I believe, three by the end of the year. And that seems ambitious. It's not going to stop there. We're going to continue. And again, with the with the amazing support of Rebecca's family friends this it takes a village and right now we have a part of that village with Rebecca's family um 
And I think the the important part too is that Rebecca's family as well as mine, we don't just go through as addicts, we don't go through that addiction alone. The addiction also it affects our parents, it affects our siblings, it affects all of those that are close to us. And you carry I know I did for and I still do, I, I carry a guilt of what I could have done differently and the things that I put my own children and my own family to. So I think that's also part of making that making amends that we continue to do. And in doing so, this is our dream. This is our goal is to have sober living houses and as many as, as we can do because there, it'll the need is going to continue. And unfortunately, we all know that. And to have a safe environment for these people in recovery to go to, as Rebecca said, you can go to an inpatient program for 30 days, 45 days, but recovery will continue your entire life. We need to be able to give those tools and those resources to those people in recovery to hear more of the success stories. We are losing, I mean, our children, as obviously, as you know, our children, our, our loved ones are dying from these, the addictions. We just felt like we just, we needed to take a step further. We need to provide safe living environment and learning tools. And people who are listening, people in the community, people can help. That is one thing that we're going to put some information on this podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast, there's some information on how to get a hold of you. If you'd like to help out with this effort, if you'd like to volunteer to donate, what kinds of things do you need for the house? Well, right now we're still in need of anything that would uh, take care of the lawn, like a lawnmower, shovels for when the winter comes, uh, weed eater, tons of things for the house. Just Blankets. all the things to operate a house, oh, yeah. right? Everything you know, that for a living yeah. is I what mean, you need. Shower curtains, shower rods. I mean, all those small things to big things and uh, help. I mean, to how move people, everything in. Yeah. yeah. How about people with, like you said, you wanted to remodel the basement so you could have more beds. How about people with construction background? Right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so hopefully the community will rally around your efforts. I think many people don't know about those efforts yet, but they will be learning about them, right? And you're, since you're talking to treatment centers and you're going to continue to work with treatment centers in, in getting people into your homes, hopefully the word will spread on what you're doing. I would like to ask both of you to answer this question because as a mother of a child who suffered from addiction, who died, I always wonder what families need to know, your families. Like what advice do you have? Because even every day now, I get contacted by people asking me for advice and help, asking me what they should do. Their, their loved one's in the emergency room. Their loved one is addicted to meth. Their loved one is in jail. Their loved one overdosed on fentanyl. And it's very hard to know what the right advice is to give people. What advice do you have for families who are struggling, who have a loved one who's going through something like this? Really educate yourself as much as you possibly can about addiction so that you can confront or maybe confront is not the right word, but embrace the situation with love and understanding. And that's what those police officers gave me that day when they arrested me. The police officers absolutely gave you love and understanding rather not than anger and judgment. 
instead of anger and judgment degrading yes it has to come from a place of love not from a place of disgust i feel that not giving up don't give up on them and as rebecca said educate yourself a lot of a lot of parents a lot of siblings don't don't know what the signs are they don't they're not educated on what what is happening with the addiction or how to tell the signs of addiction i know for myself when i was in treatment and I finally had told my mom what was going on. She didn't judge me. She didn't get angry with me. She just loved me. She supported me through all of it. And one of the things that my mom did, and I I still kind of laugh a little bit to this day about it, is I she had me come and live with her. That was insisted that I was living with her. I did that. And I felt like, in a sense, I felt like a 12-year-old again. She wouldn't let me drive. She wouldn't let me have any money. She pretty much controlled everything. And that is actually pivotal in recovery is that you don't just give them a paycheck. You you have to reteach them. Just being, just being there for them and letting them know. Because anybody that's suffering from addiction, they are ashamed they're ashamed of themselves. They're ashamed of what has gotten them there or what is continuing to put them there. And they don't need to be ashamed. They need to just reach out, whether it's to somebody within their family, whether it's going to an NA meeting and reaching out to someone there, calling the helpline, reaching out to any of us and let and just letting them know this is an addiction, this is a disease. Just embracing them because that's what they need. They don't need the judgment. They don't need to be told what they already know that they're doing. They know it's wrong. Exactly. They just can't stop. Yeah, exactly. And right. that's exactly what it is. They don't know how to stop. And this is what you're going to be teaching them yes. in the sober living. I mean, this is hopefully what treatment teaches you. And what sober living will teach people how they, to how to stop and how to live again in a different way. Absolutely, and I think that my my parents, as, as Rebecca said about the shame, is you know my parents were worried about oh my god what everybody was everybody going to say, and so it reaches so I mean so much further, and I think that's why it's so important to be educated, but to get away from the stigma. I mean, people have got to be able to talk about this openly without feeling like, oh, my God, what is everybody going to say about our family? What did I do wrong? She's just a bad egg. You know, those types of thoughts. You just got to let it go and say, okay, this is our situation. Let's reach out to the experts. What do I need to know? Well, and I believe there isn't a family that goes untouched by addiction in some way. So you're right. And hopefully that's what we're doing today is we're talking about it more And I wish you so much success in these endeavors. I know that this is going to just take off and be a wonderful thing. I can tell just by your commitment and your passion for it. And you're doing something. You saw a need and you're filling it. And I just want to congratulate you both on doing that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I think one thing I want to say that I hope that your listeners will, will really understand is that addiction does not discriminate. It doesn't matter what walks of life you come from. You could come from the wealthiest or not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't discriminate. So just try to embrace that person, family member, and 
just be there for them. And I think as long as we see the humanity in people and we don't classify people, that can happen. I think that we can really get to a point in our society, in our culture. Look, at we're all sitting here talking about it today. Yeah. That's one step in the right direction. You, Rebecca's, are taking action, true action that will help this community. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. So excited to be here. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.